This morning our scripture reading comes from the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, and running through the end of the chapter. Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Father, we thank you for this word, a gift from heaven itself speaking to each of us in our struggles and joys. We ask that you might bless our time in your word, that you might lead us away from sin, that you might draw us unto yourself, that you might send us out to our neighbors in love and service. And so we pray, O Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts might be acceptable in your sight, O our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it was the first day of the first week of the first semester of my graduate studies, having entered a, a doctoral program, and the first matter of business was the German exam. And there had been no preparations of any formal sort, there had been little guidance, simply word. This mattered a lot. Sink or swim. As you entered into doctoral study, you would have to be capable of reading massive, copious amounts of German literature. And so you were compelled to go and study or take tutorials, even take classes at other schools in preparation for this day. And they sat us in a seminar room for two hours and placed some new surprising text in front of us. And having instilled in us this fear and trembling that we needed to be able to pour through German literature at a great pace, they started us off. And I remember feeling very prepared, having devoted myself diligently to studying for this, and and being very exuberant about showing what I had learned. And so I rattled through those two hours and poured out some 15 or 20 pages of translation. I caught the subjects. I translated the verbs. I was moving at such a fast clip that punctuation almost didn't stop me, and we were moving along with great speed. And I remember passing it off and thinking, okay, well, now we're on to classes and and all the other significant things that matter, and I get to put this to use. And it was about two weeks later that I found out that I had completely misperceived the expectations and desires of those who would be grading this exam. And that for all their talk about our need to move through at a rapid clip and to be able to read with great speed, all they wanted was one page crisply and neatly translated. And I had given them a book, it seemed, that was very inelegant, that was occasionally rather ambiguous, and that failed. You know, it's oftentimes the case that we only find out expectations with clarity 
after a problem has ensued. That friend, that employer, that teacher, doesn't state things oh so clearly up front or we don't pay attention. And it's only after we receive the knowing glance, the curt word, the demotion, or the failing grade, that we realize what we should have been after all along. And that's the kind of dilemma we find ourselves in here in Hebrews 5. Maturity has been described at a couple points throughout the epistle. In chapter 2, verse 10, we're told that our great Savior was made perfect or mature. He was made complete for the sake of our salvation. Earlier in chapter 5, verse 9, we're again told that having been made mature through suffering, He was made mature such that He was capable of being a great Savior unto many. But it's only here, when you come to a problem and an intervention, that you get a definition, that the author slows down and talks about what maturity is, what maturity is for, and how maturity comes. And that's where I want to spend our time this morning, thinking through this oft-overlooked concept, this remarkable calling that we oftentimes view as, I think, fairly too mundane for our attention, but that apparently the author, like many other apostles, and our Lord Himself views as the calling of every Christian woman and man. And so I want to fix our attention on verse 14 here. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And my prayer is that you won't have to retake your German exam like I did. That you won't find yourself having missed the mark for misperceived expectations. I suspect that some of you, if you're like others will believe that you don't have the giftings, the talents, the innate capacities for something like maturity, and so you don't ever step up to the plate. And that others of you, precisely because you do have giftings and talents and certain spiritual capacities, certain strengths that are recognized by others and yourself, that you don't realize that maturity oftentimes calls beyond those gifts and speaks to wider competence, to wider complete growth, and you've coasted on gifts and talents and strengths. And so whether you find yourself dejected and despairing or confident, I hope all of us can lean into the call to maturity, to wholeness. And so this morning we want to consider through this verse and through what Scripture teaches what maturity means and what makes for maturity. First, what maturity means? Well, it arises here precisely because it has not been attained. And we can perhaps begin by observing its opposite or its lack, the way in which the author describes those who are immature, beginning in verse 11. And and we encounter a number of phrases. They're not terribly complimentary, but there they are in a variety of forms. The immature are dull of hearing. They need someone to teach them again the basics of the oracles of God. They need milk. They're unskilled in the word of righteousness. They are 
a child. And therefore, we read in chapter 6, the first few verses, they're enamored with the elementary doctrines of Christ. The images, of course, are all developmental, aren't they? Nothing wrong with being a child when you're a child. Nothing wrong with needing milk from your mother when you're an infant. Nothing wrong with being unskilled in the adult matters of the world. There's something remarkably beautiful about that kind of innocence. And yet we realize the danger when we grow up and we don't grow up. We realize the limits and struggles to the way in which we'll bless others, to the way in which we'll navigate this world. And so we have this call here that we might grow up from milk to solid food, from being unskilled in the Word to being skilled in receiving it, from the elementary doctrines to those weightier matters of God's glory to be shown to us. We are called to maturity. Now, it's crucial to catch what the author means by this word maturity. The the specific word here is the same word from which we get the idea of an end or a goal, telos. And and this, this term speaks to wholeness or completion, bringing something to its whole end or its directed purpose, bringing it to its completed goal. It's the same word that you find in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus at the end of Matthew 5 speaks of how you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's not calling you to the impossible task of being infinite, of being eternal, of being omnipotent and all-powerful. He's not suggesting that creatures should become the Creator. No, He's suggesting that just as God is whole and complete... He doesn't show partiality. He's not righteous on Sundays and then lackadaisically disinterested the rest of the week. But rather, he is whole and consistent. So we, in our own creaturely dependent way, are to be whole and complete. We are to be fully formed. It's the same language used by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 when he speaks of how the gifts of the body are meant to build up the body to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ to what he calls mature manhood or adulthood, more specifically. That the Word of God is meant to create this breadth and depth that matches or corresponds to the height, width, breadth, and depth of God's love for us. That in the gospel, God completes his work within us. That he transforms us from the inside out. That he conforms us to the image of God in Christ Jesus, as we read in Romans 8, 29 and 30. And so it's crucial to see that maturity is not flawlessness, though it is wholeness. We see this, especially in this own chapter, in that Jesus, the flawless one, had to be made mature. He was born sinless. He didn't have 
to go through some form of restorative punishment so that a sinner might be made holy. No, he was sinless. He was pure. We read in chapter 2 that he was like us in every respect, yet without sin. He never turned against his father. He never disobeyed his parents. He always was directed by God's word. Nonetheless, we're told twice. In chapter 2, verse 10, and in chapter 5, verse 9, he had to be perfected or matured. He had to be completed so that he might be a fit offering and a worthy high priest to serve in the heavenly places. He had to grow up. He had to develop. He didn't have to uh, become a crooked stick made straight, but he did have to become a child made adult that he might serve in God's heavenly place on our behalf. And so it's crucial to see that maturity is about wholeness. It's about growing up in Christ and being conformed to His image. It's not about sinless perfection. It's not about flawless performance. It is about walking humbly in covenant with our God. And when we have that kind of perspective, we can see that maturity is not for the elite, but maturity is the aim of all. The author here doesn't point out that leaders or some especially blessed, especially significant group of spiritual persons in the congregation have failed to be mature, but rather he addresses the totality of the group. He says, you have not moved on to maturity. And then he summons them, let us therefore, in chapter 6, verse 1, let us therefore leave elementary things and press on unto maturity. There's an expectation that every man, woman, and child will pursue this. And that by God's grace, chapter 6, verse 3, if God permits, they will attain it. And this matches what we see elsewhere in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 1.28 speaks of how he as an apostle serves not simply that people might be evangelized or brought to Christ, but that they might be made mature in Christ. And so he speaks there of wanting and of pouring himself out that he might present everyone mature in Christ. He's not after simply planting seeds in the ground He's not after simply seeing shoots come out from the dirt. But he wants to present before his maker and redeemer flowered bushes. A garden that has actually grown and blossomed. And so often we have such small expectations as if all that we're after is proclaiming the word, throwing the seed out. Or all we're after is seeing initial conversion, the shoot come up from the ground. When Paul here, the great apostle and evangelist who circled around the Mediterranean several times over, he's after seeing the garden flourishing and being able to present people mature before his God and Father on high. And we see that this means that maturity is a calling for all of us. Now, I think we struggle with this because we live in a time marked by what some have called the cult of genius. That we think of those who move forward and achieve, and we think 
of what capacities they have that enable them to excel in certain ways. We think of their IQ scores, or we think sociologically of the people, the networks, the influence, and the resources they have available to them. We think of athletes and the remarkable way in which they have a wingspan or they have a torso that's fit for a particular sport or activity. We think of the singer who has a vocal range of some remarkable note. And we live in a a day and an age where perhaps the most popular line of movies are superhero movies where the struggles of the world must be matched not by ordinary people. No, we need a hero. He's got to be fast. He's got to be strong. He's got to be of notable genius in some way, capable of dealing with the great grave issues of the day. And of course, the catch with thinking about things that way and always chalking progress up to some exceptional skill or talent, is that it, it puts us off the hook, doesn't it? If, if I'm not seven feet tall, then it's not incumbent on me to go become a college or professional basketball player. If I don't have that kind of hand-eye coordination, then I don't need to become a professional violinist. If I don't have that kind of IQ, then I don't need to study to become an educated person in the same way. If if I don't have that kind of charisma in front of a crowd, or that gregarious gift of hospitality, if I don't have that insight and wisdom into the Word of God, then I don't need to press on further in the Christian life. I'm ordinary and mundane. And maturity must be for those with some exceptional skill, some God-given talent. Now, it's crucial to note God gives unique skills. And they vary. They vary from God blessing with the power of His Holy Spirit. We read in Exodus, those who would make the furniture for the tabernacle. And so it can take the form of carpentry and artistry. And we learn that God blesses with words and insight those who might teach His Word in unique ways. And we learn that God grants many gifts to the body. And we do well not to envy others' gifts, not to disparage others' gifts, but to encourage and use all our gifts for the building up of the body. And so the Bible does speak of giftedness in various ways. And of course, none of us have all the gifts And that means there are limitations. That means I ought not seek to do certain things where others are better capable. But the Bible never speaks of giftedness in such a way that it does away with or disparages the more central calling for all of us to grow up. The world doesn't need me to be a violinist or a professional athlete, but the world does need me to grow up to maturity to be a neighbor, to be a friend, to be a member of the church, to be a citizen, to be a father, to be those things in limited, feeble, frail, oftentimes failing ways, but to be those things in covenant with God and with one another. And the world needs you, and the church needs you, and God has a calling for each of you. Whether you feel at the end of years of work that 
you haven't attained those heights because you didn't get recognized or have those resources or have those remarkable talents. And so you feel something of a a, a mediocre experience and reputation. Or perhaps you feel that you have demonstrated your strengths time and time again and you've risen to the top and you feel that, that you can play to those strengths and bless others in work and in church and in family and friendships. Wherever you may be, and, and, and from whatever experience you may be coming, whether high or low, whether arrogant presumption or despairing laziness is going to be the mark, all of us are called to wholeness, to maturity, to increasing, growing maturity in Christ Jesus. And we see last that maturity here is marked by discernment. Maturity is marked by discernment, being able to perceive what is appropriate in a given situation. Maturity is described here as those who have the power of discernment to distinguish good from evil. It's it's one thing to know that there are good and evil. It's another thing to be able to be dropped in a situation, to have something come upon you, and to discern what good or evil would look like in that case and place. And of course, when you realize that most of our decisions are intuitive and instantaneous, we don't have the gift of prolonged reflective pause, the ability to discern, to respond, to offer an upbuilding word rather than a negative criticizing word that leaves someone hurt is crucial. How many of of the sins you wish you could have back were those words that you gave to a loved one, to a co-worker, to a friend, without any reflection. They just flew off your lips. I find that the, the moments I wish I could have back more than any other are when I am ad-libbing in the, in the fly of it. And that speaks of what's in my heart. And that speaks of my ability or lack thereof to discern the right word in the midst of the flow of a conversation. And so I want to pursue increasing maturity, an increasing capacity to respond in an encouraging, upbuilding way. Well, how do we do that? If maturity is about increasingly being able to discern the right response to discern what faith looks like in a given situation, what love would call for in a particular spot. If maturity is for all of us, whether we're gifted in this way or talented in that, and if it's going to affect how we live our lives in every sphere, then then how does this happen? And of course, the first answer is that God makes it happen. And our author will get there in chapter 6, verse 3, where he says, we're to leave elementary things behind, we're to press on to maturity and This we will do if God permits. And so, of course, we know and we're reminded here of that cardinal truth that this is a matter of prayer and of pursuit by God's grace. And that just as the sunshine and the rain from above are a gift from another, so is every increasing step in the path of maturity and the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But it's worth noting, God typically works through certain means. And our author here notes the pathway to maturity, the way in which God ordinarily instills increasing maturity and completeness, wholeness in His people. The mature are those who have their powers of discernment to distinguish good from evil, 
trained by constant practice. Trained by constant practice. This language of training here is language pulled right out of the Roman gymnasium. It's an athletic word. It speaks of practicing the drills of the kingdom, going through the rhythms. And that's what we do this very morning as we gather together. As we learn how to pray, as we learn how to praise, as we learn how to think more wisely, more biblically about ourselves, our world, and our God. We can think about the various practices of the Christian life, the various ways in which God instills the virtues of faith, hope, and love, in which God teaches and forms us so that wherever we're dropped, we respond dependently upon Him. Wherever we're placed, we react hopefully based on His gospel word. Whatever circumstance we are tossed in, we act lovingly toward those around us. We can't predict or project the circumstances of our lives, and we can't fend off all difficulties or adversities, all trials or temptations. We, of course, know that even Jesus wasn't able to avoid such things. And though he prayed that the cup might be taken, God called him in Gethsemane to journey to Calvary. And he tells us we will too. So how do we find that God shapes in each of us a character that when we're placed in that moment, when we're faced with that adversity, when we're given that success and we want to respond not out of arrogance but out of gratitude, when we're faced with that failure and we want to respond repentantly, not bitterly, When we're faced with that new wealth and we want to respond generously, not consumptively. When we're faced with that new opportunity and we want to step forward with boldness and courage, not timidity. How do we shape ourselves by God's grace? We train by constant practice. As we've done this morning, we learn how to mark every moment of our lives with the words of the Psalms that train our lips and our hearts how you respond to joy and to sorrow, to gain and to loss, to life and to death. We're trained by the rhythms of our church's life. That our identity is shaped in baptism and we remember it every time someone comes forward to be united to Christ. That we find that our death has been taken in His death. And our life has been found in His resurrection life. How do we think about our flourishing and our provision for days forward, near and far? We come to the table. And we find not that God is waiting for us to deliver up to Him that which we might accomplish, but that He declares these are the gifts of God for the people of God, and that we learn the rhythm of life where God provides for His people, so that when you're in situations of struggle and worry, of anxiety and fear, you respond in faith and with hope that frees you to love your neighbor and to focus your delight on God. And so we see here that by God's grace, it's these ordinary, mundane means of grace. It's the regular training by constant practice that is meant to instill patterns of faith, hope, and love, of increasing wholeness and maturity in each of us. And it's crucial to note, we often think we 
perhaps react thinking practice sounds so opposed to grace. If it comes by grace, if God gives it, then you don't have to practice it. We have some notion that grace is simply and solely an account transfer. As if grace only comes in the form of God depositing funds in our account. Now, of course, grace does take the form of us having a substitute who stands in our place, who takes our sins upon Him, who grants us His holiness and righteousness so that we're beloved in Him before the Father and God delights in you. But grace goes beyond that. And this one who has transferred funds into your account also teaches you to keep your checkbook. He trains you for the kingdom. He transforms you for maturity. And He commissions you for a calling. And so grace is a multifaceted, many-splendored thing. And we do well not to miss some of its brilliance. We do well not to miss some of its significance. We do well not to miss the breadth of what God gives. As we sang in Rock of Ages at the end of that verse, He not only does away with the penalty, but also the power of sin. He not only deals with our failure, but also with our immaturity. He not only substitutes Himself for us, but by His Spirit, He gradually transforms us all the way unto glory at His return. And this is why Paul can say in Colossians 1, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That heralding Jesus leads to maturity. That practicing the various callings of the Christian community that instill increasing dependence in Him lead to maturity. When you try and teach a child to float on the water, you have to teach them to practice certain maneuvers, to stop moving their arms, to lay their weight back into the water, to keep their feet up. Every intuitive response of a small child will be to kick against all of those guidances. They will seek to find their own equilibrium. They will worry that if they lean back in, they will fall down and drown. And yet, each and every adult knows what it means to train a child or to have learned as a child themselves to trust that the water will hold you that you can lay flat upon the top of a pool, a lake, or the ocean itself. The practices of the Christian life are a lot like that. It does involve thoughtful intentionality. It does involve practice and repetition. But at the end of the day, we find that it's God's grace that provides and sustains. No child at the end of the day gets to say, I walked on water. I did that. I made myself float there. No, the water holds you. But you do have to learn the rhythms of living dependently. As we come and we learn how to pray, we learn how to be joyful and sorrowful from the Psalms. As we come to the fountain, we learn how to identify ourselves by God's action in Jesus Christ as we come to the table and we learn what it means to be filled, not of our own doing, but the gifts of another. 
we learn bit by bit what it means to look away from ourselves. And so the remarkable regularity of Christian practices is found in the fact that each and every one of them point away from ourselves. It's true, practice in other areas does point toward oneself. Someone can practice a golf swing time and time again, such that when they're able to lay the ball down in the center of the fairway, right where they want, it speaks of their competence. It speaks of their control. It speaks of their strength and their coordination. But when we learn to repeat and to own the words of the psalmist in our struggles and joys, it doesn't speak to our strength. It speaks to the fact that we've learned how to cry uncle, that we've learned how to call out, that we've learned to whom we can turn. It speaks to the fact that faith has become intuitive, that hope has become normal, and that love has become absolutely fundamental to our calling by His grace. And that's the call that he has for each of us. Whatever your gifting, whatever your opportunities, whatever your networks of influence, whatever your resources to hand, that he desires wholeness for you, that he provides grace for you, and that he lays out these regular rhythms and practices of keeping his day, of praying his word, of gathering together for encouragement and exhortation, of coming to partake of His sacraments, of lifting His name on high, that these marks, these basic marks of increasing adulthood and maturity might be those things instilled in you and displayed before Him when you're presented complete and whole with joy by His Son. Let's pray and ask Him to do that in each of us. Father, we thank You that You not only save us from our past, but You grant us such a promising future. We thank You that in Jesus we have not only the promise that You will do away with our many sins, but that by Your Spirit He will continue to instill in us every grace and blessing found in the heavenly places. And we long for that to mark our life here on this earth. We long for the ways of that kingdom to be more deeply instilled in the patterns of us this very day. And we need your help. And so we pray that you might instill in us a deep prayerfulness and watchfulness, that we might be alert to our need for you, and that we might be attentive to your action in our midst. We long to be directed on Your calling. And so we pray that You would put to death those desires of our hearts that are evil, distracting, and idolatrous, and that You might instill in each of us the ways of the kingdom and the longings that we might each seek first Your righteousness and Your kingdom and acknowledge You in all our ways. We pray that you might conform us to the image of Christ, for we find him to be all beautiful and all surpassing in his brilliance. Would you do that, we pray in his holy name. Amen.